are tuned in to Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. All the time and sleep in the streets. I'm not going around the streets having orgies all the time. You're not, huh? And burning down buildings and bombing things. I'm as concerned as you are about the direction of this country. You know, I, I, I really feel sorry for you. You know, we're the same age. And here you are defending a miserable existence. Don't you realize how you're being exploited? How the, how, how the people who control the money are diminishing your existence to working in a fucking dirty factory which puts black smoke Watch up in the air, which pollutes the entire world, and you're working your ass off saving money for your kids, getting pennies while they're making hundreds and hundreds of dollars? Don't you realize how you're being duped? How they get your head fucked with? How they have you indoctrinated? How they have you conditioned? How they've misinformed you? Don't you see this? Are you that blind? Some new kick comes along, some new drug comes along, you'll try it. What about some new kick like genocide, like imperialism, like napalm warfare? What about those new kicks which this country puts in practice? Hello. Uh, sorry, we we, did, we had to get these people out of the studio. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> some people arguing about off. something. Hi, and welcome uh, to the Sun Cinema Podcast, a weekly radio show that examines the highs and lows of the medium of film through the filtered lens of Washington, D.C.'s only art house cinema. Sons, welcome. I am your host, Jason Cauley, and I'm here with my co-host and the proprietor of Sun Cinema, Ryan Hunter Mitchell. What movie is this that we were just? Oh my gosh! Yeah, this is tell like, us a bit about the clip we just we all watched right, right now. So I'll do a Jamal uh, just watched it. A quick segue into like we're going to do a podcast at some point called um, kind of the great sleepers of all time, and this. Had I not been mentioning it and we not played this clip today, would have made my list. It's okay. one of those movies. It's kind of hard to find. You can actually watch the whole thing on YouTube, and it's a pretty good uh, version of it. You know, watchable. Certainly on you know laptop that kind of thing. Um, but it's a film called Punishment Park it's from 1971. Um, Peter Watkins uh, wrote and directed this thing, and it's kind of a it was a really hard mockumentary style um, film where basically it's this uh, they're taking groups of hippies and draft dodgers again 1971 and putting them in this place called Punishment Park which is I think basically Death Valley Desert (laughs) and they're kind of hunting them down it's basically Uh, hard target but with no Van Damme yeah yeah it's a little most dangerous game-ish but really you know I mean like you could hear that uh, it's definitely politically charged and kind of really mm-hmm. one of those movies that's like of that moment of that time, you know. Definitely. So what are we talking about well, today? Well, right? they said it well. Uh, yeah. <laughs> whatever they were saying. Yeah, yeah. They said it well. Uh, today, I guess we're going to talk about how does taste in cinema change? Like, what is taste? How does it change? And more, what does it change in relation to? So we kind of. We, we've yeah. kind of constructed some methodology of analyzing how yeah. taste changes. And I, I think it's important, especially like to understand, like this is like a 45 minute to an hour podcast. So we can't go from like the inception of film onward here. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly things like world wars and, you know, massive technology jumps, uh, you know, influenced everything just as much as other art forms and sure. and all of all of these things through throughout the last hundred years or so of, of filmmaking um we've kind of 
optioned ourselves into like the 60s and 70s feels like a, a, good, a good thing time. yeah a good time where you had a lot of convergence of culture technology art all you know coalescing and affecting and influencing and um driving cinema in a certain direction so yeah, yeah that's what we decided we'll we'll kind of get yeah. into today yeah we're gonna use the 60s and 70s as like uh uh, close our, our window, give ourselves some parameters right. to try to analyze how taste changes and what big changes may have happened in that time. Now, we're always talking about movies, and often it's a sprawling uh, 60, 70 years worth of movies, and sure. we're trying to hold them to something and explain why we like them or dislike them or what's happening in the movements of film. But I think we came up with a, a kind of nice little process here i think uh, so the factors we're gonna use right here are like what does what does taste in cinema change in relation to or how does movies how mm -hmm. do movies change and the markers we're using are art uh national mood or politics culture uh, you know that could be music or or counterculture commerce it's obviously going to be Certainly. a big one and uh technology is a big one that you mentioned i think that you can't ignore. Uh, sure. Also, just film. How does other film influence film, and how does that change taste? Uh, that, I think that's the more obvious one, is that you know a lot of people might think that taste is changing in film in a kind of linear way. Everything's just following the movies that existed. But right. I think all of these factors at a certain time kind of gives a bit of a historical context to why cinema might be changing. Yeah, I'm kind of oddly, uh, this is, is just a weird thing, but I was literally having this conversation with someone at a, at a, a thing last night here in D.C. and um, was talking about a, a film I just saw Sunday night at, at Suns, uh, Mildred Pierce uh -huh. from 1940, uh, Michael Curtiz film, Joan Crawford, all that. Um, and it was a really weird crowd, and it got me kind of thinking in, in line with, the subject matter that we kind of settled on for this week, which was, you know, how much impact, you know, that particular time has on that film and how just we view those things. And it's 2019 and, you know, obviously none of us were born in, in 1940 that were at the, you know, cinema watching this. It was all, you know, age range of about 70 to, you know, 20. Um, but certainly, uh, putting things into perspective when uh -huh. you're watching a movie. You know I mean? I was just saying like, even like for the Mildred Pierce stuff and, and things like that, it was, this was like when Hollywood was, was Hollywood, you uh -huh. know, and it was a studio film and it was like, you went for so many reasons that, you know, this is like pre Brando and all this. So it's not sure. Maybe, you know, you could argue like at what level artistically it was at in some respects, uh, certainly in in acting performances and things like that, maybe. Um, but just like understanding the time in which something was made that you're watching mm -hmm. and, you know, really understanding the context of, of what was going on in the world, what was yeah. going on in, in the world of film and how that business side of that worked. And we can kind of talk about that in, a, in an overarching way, uh, kind of as a lead in. But it was just an interesting thing because about half the audience, you could tell, like understood where they were, understood what was going uh -huh. on, understood what was on the screen and when it when it came from as much as where it came from. Uh, 
and about half the audience didn't weren't quite there. They were sure maybe you know it's surprising now how many people like just don't haven't seen black and white movies. They're like mm-hmm. adults and they just haven't seen you know too many black and white movies, let alone something that's taking itself very seriously in 1940. Sure. That's very much a, a studio picture. Um, with like the most studio type of actress, you know, and acting yeah. stock actors, um, so it was just a weird experience. But it kind of got me thinking in these larger, you know, uh, con- in this larger context of like, what are all those things that influence kind of where you are at a particular moment in yeah. time in a movie? Um, That's a great bouncing off point too, because. Mildred Pierce, kind of the reason we showed it was not really for the same reason that was up for six Academy Awards at the time. Right. We we tried to show it in the lens of uh, it, how it was appreciated in the 1960s, which was this movie is over the top. Joan Crawford's acting is way over the top, and it can be enjoyed as a almost campy movie mm-hmm. when it's a super serious movie. It's, right. it's got all the elements of a classic noir um yeah you know it does address class does address gender oh roles. yeah yeah i think especially the gender role piece like was mm-hmm. way ahead of its time sure so um but those those are worth looking at historically in that time because at the time that it came out that was probably pretty provocative yeah it was challenging gender roles yeah this is pre-world war ii women were not really in the mm-hmm. workplace in you know at a, at a national level certainly sure um um, but then being able to enjoy it completely differently or as something ridiculous. And that lies in the personal idea of taste. And yeah, how, right. How you get to come to a movie. And yeah, look yeah. At it. And just looking at like, um, you know, part of the reason people went to the movies uh, during that time was like true escapism. And they want to see like these massive, beautiful mm-hmm. sets and Edith Head dressing everybody in like amazing yeah. clothing and, you know, things just... Um, you know, truly being kind of this wonderful fantasy land that was Hollywood. Yeah. Um, and that's what you went to the cinema for to some degree. And just how how that's changed over time is, is always fascinating. But, you know, particularly in, in our uh, podcast today, at least, you know, the 60s and 70s and and just kind of, you know, looking at what it was that you know affected how cinema played out over those really i'm not even going to say like the full 60s but like the mid to late 60s uh-huh. into the to the mid to late 70s uh, well so so about a 12 or 13 year time frame yeah and in that time we're going to look at a lot of things a lot of studio structures breaking down for changing sure up a lot of the rules that or formulas that had seemed to work for a long time these are starting to change yep. um and it's changing for a lot of reasons uh, let's start off with art because it's right. uh, it's it's first in the alphabet on our list and it's top of our list. Uh, right. I I'll start off with Warhol. I think we both talked yeah, about yeah. Warhol. Now, never mind his art, the Campbell suit cans and all this, but he's kind of like the he he's a, a huge figure of postmodernism. Oh, um, I think maybe the the hugest actually. Yeah. I mean, it could be argued. I mean, some. I mean, I remember like when. 2000 was happening like and you you know of course looking back on the the century and all of these lists are coming out right you know greatest athlete and the greatest this Mm -hmm. and the greatest musician and the great you know the most impactful whoever and i remember like 
time somebody life uh, was still around like somebody did like who was the most impactful person in the last hundred years and somebody huge uh, like time or somebody had Warhol number one like it's the most got, effective guy it's got to be up there and yeah. for good or bad uh, yeah. I mean you can trash I mean I don't care if we trash anything about sure. art, but the open thievery is is something it's like oh we're not supposed to steal from images right why not yeah, yeah, and what, that was it. It's just the questioning of what we expect from art and, sure. and what are how we look at art. Yeah, yeah. Um, and obviously this had been done before. You know, you yeah, yeah. he wasn't the first Duchamp, person for sure. But he is mass producing it. He's yeah. aware of what ma- what mass production does to the art. Yeah. You know, it it changes the art if you produce <laughs> ten thousand. Yeah. I mean, of them. Okay. it was called the Warhol factory for yeah. a reason. You know, I mean, he was pumping stuff out. Um, uh-huh. And it it was driven, you know, obviously through all the artistic influences that, that he had. But it was he was also commenting on commercialism of entertainment and art and how those all kind of coalesce together. And for me, I mean, I think I've, I don't know if I've said this on on the podcast before, but certainly you and I have talked about it where, you know, that's kind of the thing I love most about cinema is that it is beholden to commerce and it makes no bones about it yeah you know it's called the movie business we can all talk about cinema and film and these high um artistic you know um theories and and i agree with all of them i Uh do believe it's the most fascinating art form in the world at least right now um but it's a business it's a business yeah yeah let's get to the commerce of it in just a second sure sure that's I think that's obviously going to be a huge one. And I like that it is so openly tied to it and helps us analyze that. Uh, Another key fact or feature that we get from Warhol is the playing off of the nostalgia or the awareness of a trope playing off of that and just doubling down on it. Yeah. You know, it, it needs, it needs everything else to exist for it to even work. Like Warhol would not have, there's no other time he could or should have existed because it needed a lot of things to happen. What he's commenting on is, is so obviously just a reflection of our own nostalgias and preferences. For sure. And I think, you know, from that artistic standpoint, um, I keep jumping over. I want to jump uh-huh. to, like, politics and culture. But, oh, that's uh, No, no, it's next. fine. But it, because it's, uh, it's just so wound together, right? There, I mean, actually. like, if we yeah. want to talk about Dylan, you know, Bob Dylan, again, like one of those figures in the last hundred years, one of the most impactful uh, artists on the planet... Um, you know, Bob Dylan started in Ten Pan Alley in the early '60s, and and you know, uh, writing. If you listen to him, folk songs. If you listen to other people, protest songs. It depended on, and it was an interesting thing, like how you were hearing Bob Dylan and what you know he was yes. expressing, and uh, certainly he wanted. You know, there was a big part of him that wanted no part of being kind of the voice of a generation and all these things. Like nobody wants that kind of pressure. Uh, artistically, personally, or otherwise, but it's undeniable like the impact he had on both other artists and the impact he had on film because it was waking film up to say, hey, we can comment on the world around us. It doesn't yeah. just have to be this dream world of Hollywood and we make these, you know, kind of um, sterilized movies or anything like that. We can truly like make films that change the way people think about the world they're living in. Uh-huh. Um, 
not that it wasn't being done before. We're not saying that. We're just talking about a particular time. Yeah. <laughs> so don't, yeah, don't don't send a bunch of emails saying like we missed out and we, you know, we weren't thinking about Orson Welles or Godard or you know whoever. Um, certainly, these things have been happening over time, but in the '60s in particular, uh, the early '60s, like those guys like Warhol and Dylan, uh, the Beatles. Coming mm-hmm. in the Stones, and I, I think you know the, an output from Warhol, uh, the Velvet Underground with Lou Reed. Um, yeah, probably the most, the four most impactful kind of artist, band, musical, popular music um, influence that I can think of. Well, they, they certainly offer like a really big, very big key examples of of looking at how cultural changes are happening. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they are the examples, right? Like they are the living embodiment of how things are changing and times are changing. Absolutely. I mean, you get to see one, all of them kind of start with these very derivative musical styles. Sure. 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 Super derivative, just kind of cleaned up or, uh, I mean, Bob Dylan was a reincarnation of Woody Guthrie for the first three years of his career. Absolutely. And, and the Beatles and Stones, obviously just doing kind of cleaned up R and B, beautiful pop pop music, yeah, pop music. Um, but you get to see them kind of change and react to the time to more subversion subcultures. Um, and yeah, let's go, let's get into the culture that are just like kind of, uh, the musical subculture, not necessarily the musical art being produced, but hippie right. subculture, uh, drug subculture. Yeah, and uh, I, I think you see this like uh, I'm I'm not a historian, um, but you know, just if you're putting all the pieces together, it's like there are two things that happen in the early '60s that kind of is at least in America certainly that were drivers of all of this action. One was the death of John F. Kennedy. Yeah, you get politicians getting shot. <laughs> yeah, you're one of the most, you know, beloved presidents in the history of time gets executed along with, you know, um, Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy, all of these people through the 60s, but kind of the impetus in my mind is John F. Kennedy getting assassinated. Well, it, start, it starts, kicks it off. Yeah, and then immediately following that um, is the escalation of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um which was certainly a thing in, in the very early 60s, even into the late, uh, or as early as the late 50s, but post-Kennedy when uh, Johnson just ramps up everything in Vietnam, uh, you just see this reaction, this shift culturally across mm-hmm. the country where people are, you know, a generation earlier were clamoring to sign up because they, they knew the, what they, they felt, I will say, Deeply, that what they were fighting for was the right way, not for America, but for humanity. Uh-huh. Like we're going after this thing to change something that is has put us on a course, you know, in human experience that it, we don't want to go down. Yeah. Intervention is necessary. Intervention yeah. is necessary, <laughs> and uh, and the world agreed. Um, Vietnam was very much a confusing at, at its best was confusing yeah. to the average citizen. Even to this day, most people can't put their finger on like, why, why were we in Vietnam? Oh, sure. Why did we land there? Why did we increase, you know, uh, our numbers so much? What, you know, how did all these people die? And all of that talking to the technology point, all of that was on television. Uh huh. Kennedy's assassination. The Vietnam War, the first time you had war reporters, correspondents that were going into live combat scenarios with cameramen mm-hmm. and, you know, microphones, recording devices and sending that back home real time 
uh, or virtually real time uh, to everyone sitting around, you know, the dinner table at, at night watching Walter Cronkite. Mm-hmm. Um, it had an insane impact. And it was something, you know, to try to put that into context, like that was something that didn't exist 10 years before that like and never before that yeah i mean it just mm-hmm. never existed you had newsreels from you know the the world war ii and things like that but they were heavily sanitized they were you know this was the war department the the war information uh, department and hollywood all you know colluded uh, and said look we're going to make sure this is okay for everybody to see the stuff that was coming back from vietnam in the early and mid 60s <laughs> yeah, was I mean truly was like not news on the march? Yeah, this was like body bags, you know, uh, lined up next to helicopters mm. and people, you know, bleeding all over the like people had never seen anything like this, and certainly, you know, coming through into your living room, not at a movie theater, not at somewhere where you can walk away from it, but it's right in your face. Sure, it's part of your life, and the young people of this country reacted in a way that they had never reacted before, which was in some you know people's view anarchists you know sure. level of just and some of it was like true anarchist level of like rejection of oh, this yeah. this path we're on uh and so how that influenced cinema was immediate and and hard uh yeah. you know it was visible quite early well i'm gonna propose that like one maybe mild difference between 60s and 70s maybe this isn't true at all but like uh, culture mm-hmm. counterculture culture and the national mood and politics really echo each other a lot in the 60s. Yeah, Whereas for sure. in the 70s, and I think, these, I think there's always an echo there. I think all these things are always related, mm-hmm. clearly. But in the 70s, there's a little more separation from it, you know? And right. People are, are, they can't keep up the, the momentum of actively being engaged with right. the politics of the 60s. What maybe in the early 70s, this is still happening. There's still sure, big yeah, engagement. Yeah, yeah. In the 70s, there's kind of like, we kind of survived whatever the hell was happening in the end of the 60s, early 70s. Yeah. Nixon's out of office. Everything's just a mess. But there's not necessarily, culture isn't entirely resembling, uh, or it, it is, but it's not completely echoing no, the politics right. of the time. There's disco and punk. There's this new kind of nihilism. Like, we got through that. Yeah. And now we're, it's this really still nihilist moment. I think of that in the 70s, and that opens up room for different film maybe film big box office hits i started to say that it's it's easy to kind of see it uh when you look at the lineage of of those films from the mid 60s to the mid 70s and i would say um uh, and i think this is truly a masterful film don't get me wrong but uh, you know kind of jaws in 1975 was like to me like that you know benchmark film where you go oh this is like things are going to change like mm-hmm. these these student filmmakers making like crazy weird movies and then like these these amazing kind of uh, masterful artworks like the godfather and mm-hmm. you know um taxi driver in 76 even but like 73 with mean streets and uh all of these things like suddenly there's a shift in 75 to your point where it's like oh we're kind of done you know yeah, with we the can't last be that decade. engaged like yeah. we can't just keep this up yeah. We're checking out a little bit, um, and the films reflect that. We go yeah. back to movies, you know, uh, film, and, and the biggest things for the next, well, to this day. <laughs> but yeah. certainly for the next 15 years, 
through the 80s was like, you know, can you make a blockbuster movie? You know, sure. Can you beat Star Wars? Mm-hmm. Um, can you replicate this again and again and again? Yeah. Um, and that, that wasn't a thing that existed, you know, before that. Um, certainly the 60s and, and into the early 70s was very much a comment regularly on what was happening in the world around you. you well, know. and for good reason. Let's go back. to We jump off with, with Kennedy being assassinated mm-hmm. on television. Everyone yep. gets to see this. It's probably all that's being covered. Okay, that's got to be a pretty good stab in the heart for a lot of people. Sure. But we're also ramping up Vietnam. So these you know, our global politics, all of a sudden we're having to think about ourselves and our national mood. It's like, wait, what if we're doing things that are questionable? Right. And then internally, um, you know, there's a lot of unrest going on in the 60s. I imagine there's always unrest. Uh, but uh, to focus on it a little bit, you know, our city's in disrepair. Mm-hmm. Our people employed. You know, we're starting to see the end of the optimism that came out of World War II. Right. Exactly. Um, that's a great point. That's that's where I was kind of heading with the, the Kennedy and, and all of that. So. Yeah. So... In the 60s and 70s, like, you know, we talk about how, we've talked about how war affects cinema a lot, but the internal unrest was, was big. There's race, there's politics, there's political leaders dropping all over yeah. the, plate, the, the place. There's role models getting murdered all, sure. all over. Um, and not just in the U.S., if you're looking at, you know, 68, what that's like in France and oh, Czech, yeah. Czechoslovakia, all over the world, everything's really precarious. Right. Things barely... For good or bad, things barely held themselves together, yeah, and some and things didn't. Relationships between nations were, you know, rocky all over the place as well. To your point, yeah, you know, um, so there wasn't like this solidified, you know, they kind of we kind of had this. Uh, it's almost like the sun was setting on mm-hmm. this post World War II ideology um, boom, you know. Uh, kind of wholesomeness, I guess, in, yeah. a, in a way like this, this very much, uh, I, ideal, like world we thought we were kind of uh-huh. living in starts unraveling very quickly. And so, you know, the art reacts. Well, yeah. And so whereas we get Warhol just playing up the commercialization and the, the postmodern modernism in the sense of like institutions are kind of dissolving barriers and lines are becoming less distinct. Right. What is what, what is art, what is anything, what's commerce. So that's like, okay, he's kind of having fun with it, but in the real world, we're really seeing everything dissolve too. We're wondering if our institutions do work. We're wondering if political institutions can hold. We're wondering if anything's going to, you know, supply everyone with the needs to have. Well, and yeah, I mean, the people we're looking, we're, we're getting very, uh, much in, in, into the political side of but but I mean it is important because people were starting to question all those things that they'd never questioned before exactly. directly I mean just city government mm-hmm. you know not to mention state and federal government but very localized um, concerns suddenly of like is does the city you know government of Washington DC really have my best interest totally. in mind you know does a Hollywood movie system does it still right. work do all the things that we thought we had answers to do the answers really hold up anymore. Right, and they and, started falling apart. And then that leads to, okay, paranoia of each other, there's paranoia of subcultures, there's paranoia of class. So you get division. And then I think you brought this up earlier, awesome example of right at the beginning of 70s and kind of where this is a 
futuristic movie that's telling and also very reflective of everything that was going on at the time. We get Clockwork Orange. Oh, yeah. Which, <laughs> which if you've seen it, um, you know, there's all these reasons it's great. There's a lot of reasons it's terrifying. Oh, it's completely terrifying. I, I mean, to me, it's a horror film. It really yeah. is. Like, it, it is, it kind of shakes me. When I watch it, even mm-hmm. even saw it like a few years ago, and I've only seen it a couple of times because yeah. it's, yeah, you know, frankly, it's, it's one of those. Yeah, it's one of those movies you don't need to see yeah. very often. It hangs with you um, for the rest of your life. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, out of that comes um, kind of Clockwork Orange, which is to me a great bridge between the '60s and '70s of kind of. It's- you know what we're coming out of in this this very much uh you know hippie culture a questioning culture a counterculture movement uh that happened that's still happening but but is now kind of moving into this weird place where like you said we we can't just keep this up forever well yeah where does it where are we going with it and it starts asking those questions in a very dark way but like in a very serious way too of like well, this is where it can go, you know. Yeah. If if this takes a right instead of a left, this is kind of where we're headed. Yeah. So, are we cool with that? <laughs> you know? Or even if it turn or not, it's kind of where we're headed because it, it also sure. it also reaches reaches the boundaries and the ends of um of a of a of a social bureaucratic structure. Right. Like you know, there's still kind of a welfare state. There's still a social worker working with Alex, and your main character is a pure villain. Oh yeah. I mean, your 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 protagonist that you might be rooting for, but you're probably messed up if you are by the end of it. Right. Is is a mildly complex villain, but pretty much just a psychopathic villain. Yeah, yeah. And you're watching the social state and caretakers try to tend to him and try to use bureaucratic means or. Um, institutional means to help rec- revive him recuperate him as right. like a better person yeah. to study but the thing is there's this huge lingering nihilism which there's there is no reason for anyone to get better it's right. proposing like if we don't have a reason that humans are supposed to be better right well then what happens with it you can have all the bureaucracy you want you could make sure that try to make sure someone's in school enough hours <laughs> yeah but if if there's if he gets his kicks out of killing people and robbing them and throwing the money on the ground. And that becomes contagious in some way. How do yeah. you stop that? How, yeah. How do addictive patterns happen? So it, I found the most interesting way the film and my, in my mind, people feel free to argue with this, you know, but I think one of the ways that they combated him specifically, and was kind of speaking to them uh, as a counterculture was, you know, the, the classic scene where they, you know, pull his eyes open and they just feed him. Mm-hmm. feed him all of this you know torture uh, yeah i mean it's torture but it's torture by visualization uh-huh. like we're just going to desensitize you this way because we're just going to inundate you with information with visual information of all kinds until you can't really tell the difference between reality mm-hmm. and what you're seeing on the screen and i mean talk about something that's kind of ahead of its time uh, yeah like it, it's making comments on social media before there was a, such a thing as oh, social definitely. media. You know? What does our intake do and what are the Pavlovian responses? Yeah, to the exactly. How does this affect you? You know, when you're completely inundated with information coming at you all the time, you know? Um, yeah. Do you get a, do you get a slight dose of dopamine when you get a like, right? Well, here's a shot of nauseating pain for every time you see something you don't like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
So that leads us into the 70s, which I think becomes a little more detached. Like, sure, the institution's kind of held up, but no one's that psyched on him. Yeah. No one's happy about him. And that's where I think then we get into Jaws. And then it just becomes a blockbuster, and we can, like, separate ourselves a little bit from the national mood in cinema. A little sure. bit. A little bit. Um, yeah, I think the early 70s is really interesting um, in those ways that it's kind of, like we said, kind of coming off the backside of the sixties and, and there's a, there's a great reflection of that in, in films like five easy pieces with Nicholson mm-hmm. where, you know, you kind of have these got I'm college educated. I did all the right things. I'm alive in the early seventies. What does that mean? You know, mm-hmm. to me as a human being and like this, you know, easy writer of 69, of course, but like, uh, I think five easy pieces is almost a better look at the seventies because it is truly saying like even middle-class people who were kind of doing the right things, maybe through the sixties still mm-hmm. were finding themselves just in a, in a sense of apathy, maybe yeah. a little bit of apathy and, and certainly, um, you know, a little lost, just this kind of free floating, like, yeah. where are we going from here? And it's, immensely reflected in cinema. Robert Altman probably encapsulates that better than any filmmaker of the early 70s, certainly with films like MASH, The Long Goodbye. Yeah. Um, What are we missing? Nashville. All uh, his movies, they'll they'll look so much at the characters of the environment, but everything... Nothing's so specifically in focus. Yeah, you're not the hearing, overlapping dialogue. The dialogue, yeah. everything's very just like floating around, and you're just kind of seeing the little glimpses of it. Yeah, I mean, and he's talked about that before. You know, obviously, that's one of those questions that like continually comes up of like, how do you deal with the? You know, how did you come up with this idea of just kind of letting everybody talk and you know having all this dialogue going on and and not really pointing the camera and saying here's what's important uh-huh. to listen to and and that was kind of where his answer was was you know i have faith in the audience and that the important information is going to be is going to be what draws you you know it's uh-huh. going to draw itself to you um but in reality especially like something with mash he's like if you're in these places like that's what this yeah. is. Yeah. I mean, that's part of what I, you know, I'm trying to comment on is like there is mass confusion. You know, mm-hmm. this is really moving. He does it beautifully 20 years later with the player in Hollywood and and does it exactly the same way because it's it's the same kind of environment of like uh-huh. hey man, it's just like it's a busy busy life and this is where we're going. Everybody's on the move. Everybody's, you know, talking a mile a minute. Um, for whatever reason they see in MASH, of course, it's like life-saving in, in most cases. Um, you know, we have to be this way to, to do our jobs. Um, but Altman's take on that was, was fascinating in saying, like, I trust my audience that they're, they're going to get that information. Yeah, they'll, they'll pull from they'll it what they it need out. to. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, at, whereas in the 60s, you get this really cutting-edge art, kind of anti-studio stuff, Godard, fancy editing um, certainly I mean yeah. cutting corners all over the place um, we just watched a really good one this last week uh, Funeral Parade of Roses oh Russia right, showing right. It tonight yeah yeah um, I watched it on Friday it was like Godard like had some of the same themes as Easy Rider I mean it's very much showing like right. Japanese Tokyo drug and sub hippie culture it's also looking a lot about like um 
brothel culture of gay brothels. Right. And it, it just did a... Is that like 66? 69. 69, okay. And it has some of the actors that are in... One of them's in Ron. Oh, okay. Um, who's the director? It's uh, Toshio Matsumoto. Matsumoto, yeah. And it's from ATG. We've, we've shown a few things from Art Theater Guild before, but right. this, this is the best so far that I've seen. But everything I've seen out of their studio kind of, to me, reminds me of like of French New Wave stuff. It's just like right. pretty much cheap budgets and some good, cheaper cameras with right. some really cool directors who have some ideas that probably yeah, didn't cost uh, a lot to make, but it's real cutting-edge stuff. Well, that was something. I mean, you're touching on something I think that's hugely important that we really haven't kind of spoken to directly, I guess, maybe a little bit with Dylan, but the idea that in the 60s, like we were willing to forego from a cinematic perspective, mm-hmm. we're willing to forego um, the money machine behind it. You know, yeah. I'm willing to like watch this handheld single camera, you know, thing happen in front of me because somebody's saying something valuable. Exactly. You know, and I'm, I'm here not because of, you know, and nothing against Edith Head, but uh, not here for mm-hmm. Edith Head. I'm not here for Max Steiner's score. I'm not here for you know great title work. I'm not. I'm just here because I believe this filmmaker has something very important to say. And you really need these big cracks that are appearing in the '60s of right. the studio systems or economic systems and institutions in general. You need those cracks to make room for this kind of cutting yeah. edge work, and for it to find much of an audience yeah by the 70s in the film school people and everyone kind of putting together everything from the 60s again they're able to kind of like reformat it into into a, a formula again yeah. a little bit i mean eventually a lot oh but even certainly th- but by the mid 70s you're really seeing the film school generation put together well, a lot of the cutting edge it wasn't going to take long for two things to happen in my mind um one these new crop of filmmakers having carte blanche on a studio with those resources uh-huh. suddenly right so now you're like oh my god like, these worked yeah we gotta give them something we, let's give them some money let's, let's talk let's, commerce this is yeah. where a commerce takes in yeah, yeah yeah and this is it this is in my mind kind of twofold one very smart people in hollywood who understood they were out of touch allowed the warren Beatty's, the dennis hoppers mm. and then certainly the coppola's and the entire film school generation kind of the first wave of the film school generation to come in and make these movies in the studio system and oh, then an interest, yeah yeah oh, i mean yeah truly a bunch a bunch of really you know interesting people with interesting things to say mike nichols and so on um i mean we could go on and on with this certainly but what happens is there's a handful of these very intelligent, very, um, you know, creative forces that realize like, oh, my God, there is so much money in this, too. Yeah. You know? There's also like, money here. There's also an immense amount of money right here in the studio. And if we can make this work, you know, suddenly Spielberg is Amblin Entertainment and has, mm-hmm. a, you know, a lot at Paramount and has, you know, I mean, like all these things start kind of the machine kind of finds itself again, well, right? So it expands to allow these things in because it's at a loss. It doesn't it understand to, what yeah. it's doing anymore. So it lets that come in. But as soon as that comes in and as soon as they get their head around it, they kind of put the clamp back on and go, well, okay, we're going to make this work in a big, big definitely. way. And suddenly we have a, we have an answer to the nihilism problem, right? <laughs> Guys, it's just make some money. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just exactly yeah. all that shit from the sixties, yeah. all the, okay. Yeah. Let's just all be happy. Let's make some money now. Right. And you know, then that leads to the eighties, which 
is a way to see how taste change in the 80s and will not get we've talked on that plenty yeah. but yeah with commerce so the the mode of production of making of, of just how everyone gets all their goods like obviously heavily guides the decisions made in film uh, aside from like a few times that this there's outliers of course mm-hmm. but you know the very apparent in like the casting the production decisions the director uh, and just analyzing taste in general is p- someone back there is like running the numbers right. what actor made what uh, how consistently is Paul Newman bringing in the number one movie number two right. movie um, how consistently are the directors now so in the 70s you start seeing like okay Coppola's on a roll Scorsese this guy is indie indie director also making some big waves so right. Obviously, in these decisions, it's obvious to see where commerce plays a role. Right. You know, they're trying to put this together and rebuild the formula. Um, but also, just in analyzing the numbers, I think is is a huge part of what a studio does and how we ended up looking at the format the movies were made. Right, it's people just really running the numbers. So even on tiny decisions, if it's the set design, if it's the colors being used, that's when you're going to start limiting. Or you're not going to trust maybe a new director who doesn't have a good right. track record. Oh, you want to do this? You want to do? Oh, De Palma wants to do this. Well, he hasn't made a hit yet. Right. Like, why are we throwing a bunch of money at him? Okay, it had this actor in it. They haven't done anything good in eight years. Right. So it's, it starts limiting the the experimental aspect of what certain directors are going to do, unless they can show that it worked, right. show that it made some money. Yeah. Yeah. And and how well, to be fair, I mean, how well they were playing that game. I mean, mm-hmm. Spielberg was a studio guy through and through. Like, that was his first job, was on, I think, the Warner Brothers lot, I mm-hmm. want to say. Um, you know, and then became, like, a TV director and, you know, was just kind of, like, their perfect prodigy, you know, of, like, a young, youthful guy that's going to say things in a new way that people are going to gravitate to. And he has, you know, he's not so stuck in these very personal, small mm. kind of idealistic films. Like his his reach is very grand. Like what he's oh, trying yeah. to do is big. He can get everything big. There's yeah. money in that. Yep. You know, there's money in that for sure. He can draw everyone to the movie. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's going to make popcorn sales come back up. You know. And then technology, which we've talked about a lot, is just global communications, equipment improvements, transportation. I was going to say, yeah, like the, the the equipment piece was was huge in the '60s and and early '70s. Uh, some of the cameras got lighter. Um, you know, some of the just the quality of the film itself mm-hmm. was better. You could shoot in a lot better, you know, lower light and things like that. Uh, film processing uh, improved to where you could save a lot of stuff mm-hmm. that couldn't really be saved before because. The cameras were better, the film was better, and the processing, you know, uh, the way of processing itself was was improving. And now um, moving to a new location is a lot cheaper because all those things just got cheaper. Or, yeah. or cheaper for the quality that you can get out right. of it. And, and frankly, I mean, people were realizing, like, we don't need to do this on a soundstage. Like, it's okay to just be out in the street. Mm-hmm. Like, we can make this work. It's okay if people see the ceiling it's not a big deal you know yeah yeah it's it's really okay um if the lighting's not perfect and so yeah i mean like to be able to make films on the cheap you know this is what allows this kind of thing to blow up you know Mm -hmm. um otherwise if it were stuck in this kind of studio this is your only entree you know it would have never happened Uh, yeah and and 
the studios worked when they were the only game in town. There weren't mm-hmm. a lot of outlets. Um, you know, look at any of the real experimental or avant-garde stuff made in the 40s and 50s. Right. And it was not, it never found its way into theaters. I'm sure Cassavetes was having a hard time getting his stuff in the oh, theaters. Oh, Cassavetes until, had an awful time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Any of these directors, it just didn't work. There weren't, you know, I mean, like we live in this world today. This is, again, like putting things back into perspective. Like there weren't um, film festivals, you know. There wasn't like that circuit mm-hmm. where you could be discovered and be found and stuff. Like you really had to like, people were showing these things. Obviously, at film schools, you know, was, was a place where you could kind of get noticed, whether it was USC, UCLA, or NYU. Um, but, you know little tiny showings in basements and churches mm-hmm. and wherever you could, you know, screen your film was just a big deal because unless it was, you know, backed by a studio, man, you had a hard time selling that thing. Yeah. And the, if, if they could sell you, if, if they could get you to dive into this soundstage is New Orleans or right. is Los Angeles or is Harlem is sure. wherever, it, you know, if they convinced you because they told you it was so, right. that worked for a while. Yeah. But then when you see the difference of Godard shooting in Paris or... or well, Scorsese talks about that, like the streets in L.A. Because he was in L.A. working for Corman when he was writing Mean Streets. And they were like, well, we can shoot this in L.A. Yeah, right. It'll pass. And he's like, no, no, no. A stoop in New York is... They, a, they don't exist in L.A. Yeah. And the studio stoops, you know, are just awful. Like there's you got to have trash and you got to have like, like it, this just doesn't look I wanna like New York. I want to smell it when I see it. Right. Exactly. Um, but I mean, even that, even some of the interiors and stuff uh, were shot in LA for okay. main streets. Well, that's uh, fine. Interior, that's fine, whatever. Right? But, uh, I bought it, but that was like there, it really started kind of this dance for a lot of these guys who, who kind of balance and the, then the people we think of as like true artists, the John waters, the David Lynch's, the Martin Scorsese's and so on of like, how can I, the guys who were great at it, Scorsese was maybe one of the best at it of like, I want to keep this very authentic in my own vision, but I want to use all their money. If yeah, I can. yeah. Okay. <laughs> and so if that means I'm going to shoot some interiors in L.A., but they're going to let me shoot for three weeks in New York, great. I'll do that. I'll sure. make that compromise. Where somebody like Cassavetes was uncompromising yeah, <laughs> completely yeah. and was just like, nope, I'm making my movie. I'm not going to let anybody have any say at all. Well, and that's me. why he had such big hits. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, so a uh, quick recap on the day, uh, the 60s, everything fell apart and film started to take advantage of that and make more renegade stuff. And then by the middle of the 70s, somehow a few directors and a few studios found out how to merge these two back together and rebuild a bit of a formula. Right. Um, that is way too oversimplified, but that's a rough way of looking at the 60s and 70s and how that, that shook the taste of cinema. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at any time a country, a nation, the world is in some sort of major upheaval, art blooms, right? And yep. that, I can't, that was, I've been trying to think this whole time. I, were, I really wish I would have been able to think of it. I'll think of it and, and share it next week. But there were, someone said maybe it was just in a film or something, but they were like, you know, look at, you know, what was it like? France had 200 years of, of peace and prosperity and they created nothing. <laughs> uh. And then, you know, we have one, you know, 
a major incident uh, upheaval in, in America, and we get Bob Dylan, and we get you know uh, Andy Warhol, and we get and it's just like listed all these like here, this is what happens. So you need you know that's where art comes from. You know, is constantly kind of pushing against what it's seeing, crowding in on it, and everything feeding off each other, and not in the ways that you would think. Uh, here's right. a good quote from George Clinton uh, when they, someone asked if the drugs influences music he said the drugs didn't influence our music we influenced the drugs oh nice and I think that uh, I, I, I hope that the new movies influence the drugs because all I'm doing yeah. is eating brownies and watching 3D fucking Iron Man every week right <laughs> hey uh, Jamal can you play us out on the, the Dylan clip actually and we'll see you guys next week hope you enjoyed this I know it was a little bit of rambling but um <laughs> But we actually, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to contain this topic. Yeah. Uh, but we mentioned less movies in the last two weeks, so that's <laughs> just less movies to write down. Right, exactly. Um, but, yeah, take care. We'll, we'll see you next week, and, you know, we'll, we'll let Bob Dylan take us out. They've started calling you an anarchist. Papers, that's the word now. Anarchist. Yeah. 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 You're kidding. What papers have well, you said? Oh, two or three. Today, yeah. Just because you don't offer any solution. Kidding. <laughs> of course. Anarchist. Yeah. Give me a cigarette. Give the anarchist a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs>